Hello, and welcome to Think Business Futures. I'm your host, Stefan Postuma, coming to you from 2SER Studios in Sydney on the Gadigal land of the Eora Nation, broadcast right around Australia on the Community Radio Network and around the world wherever you get your podcasts. Each week, we take a closer look at the business issues making up the news. This program is made possible by the assistance of the UTS Business School. Today on Think Business Futures, we bring you a very special episode. Recently, the UTS Business School put on a series of events as a part of the Vice-Chancellor's Democracy Forum. One of these events was a keynote address from the Nobel Prize-winning economist, Joseph Stiglitz. Today's episode is a recording of that address, which examines the role government plays in shaping post-COVID recovery, innovation and social outcomes in Australia. Today's show begins with an introduction of Joseph Stiglitz by UTS Emeritus Professor Roy Green. And the podcast of today's show will be a special extended version, which includes a conversation between Professor Stiglitz and UTS behavioural economist, Michelle Baddeley. To check out the extended version, just search Think Business Futures wherever you get your podcasts. And now to Roy Green and Professor Joseph Stiglitz speaking at the UTS Vice-Chancellor's Democracy Forum. Thank you, Vice-Chancellor, and thank you everyone for coming. We're very privileged, of course, tonight uh, to have with us Professor Joseph Stiglitz, who uh, I I suspect for most of us needs no introduction, but I will do so anyway, very briefly. Uh, He is um, obviously Nobel Prize winning economist, Professor of Economics at Columbia University, but he also is co-chair of the high-level expert group on the measurement of economic performance and social progress at the OECD and chief economist of the Roosevelt Institute. Um, he is a former senior vice president and chief economist of the World Bank and a former chairman of the U.S. Council of Economic Advisers. Uh, he was named by Time magazine as one of the 100 most influential people in the world. Uh, and um, he is known among economists for his pioneering work on asymmetric information. Um, his research focuses, it's just uh, when we say focus, it's very wide ranging on income distribution, climate change, corporate governance, public policy, macroeconomics, and globalization. He is the author of numerous books, including most recently, People, Power, and Profits, Rewriting uh, the Rules of the European Economy. And uh, some years ago, um, many of you will be familiar with Globalization and Its Discontents, and he's also written now Globalization and Its Discontents Revisited. So. Um, you don't want to hear from us. We'd much rather hear from you, Joe. So over to you. Well, thank you very much for that uh, introduction. Uh, the subject I wanted to talk about is uh, the role of government uh, in technology policy. I have basically just five points to make. Uh, first is just to remind everybody the importance of technical progress, of innovation. We don't always appreciate that for hundreds of years before around 1750, 1800, Standards of living were uh, unchanged, a little different in 1750 from what they were in the year 100 BC. There, there was really very little progress. And then suddenly, beginning around the late latter part of the 18th century, standards of living and life expectancies and every measure of well-being uh, started to increase uh, very dramatically. And uh, the answer, why? Uh, has to do with science, technology, and the ability to organize complex societies, to 
deliver the benefits that science and technology uh, made possible. So these are really ideas having to do with the Enlightenment, an unusual period in history where uh, suddenly mindsets uh, changed to uh, understand that uh, progress was possible. Uh, another important part of, of uh, the Enlightenment uh, are uh, the whole set of values having to do with tolerance and with, with a democratic organization of our society. And as important as these Enlightenment values are, we should recognize that they are being challenged. You probably don't feel it as much here as we feel it in the United States, but uh, our democracy is in a very fragile state. Uh, and uh, as some people say, we have to relitigate the Enlightenment every day. Uh, that what we thought of were well-established, well-accepted beliefs about tolerance and, and about democracy and uh, are being questioned by one of the major parties uh, in the United States. So I just want to emphasize how important advances in technology are to our well-being and that what is at stake here is every aspect of that well-being, including our democratic institutions and our economic well-being. The second uh, important idea I want to uh, highlight is that innovation is endogenous. It just doesn't come like mana from heaven. Uh, it, it, it is a result of people devoting efforts to thinking about understanding the world, uh, how to make things uh, work better, of a concerted effort to get more outputs out of uh, any level of input. So we can't take innovation for granted. Because it is endogenous, we can either accelerate it, we can change the direction in which it goes, or we can undermine it. That comes to the third and, and, and maybe the most difficult set uh, of proposition. Since Adam Smith talked about the benefits of markets, uh, markets lead as if by an invisible hand to the well-being of uh, society, there's been a strong view among at least uh, uh, many economists that markets pursuit of self-interest would lead to the well-being uh, of society. And in many ways, uh, one of the most important achievements of economic science was establishing the conditions under which and the sense in which Adam Smith's conjecture was correct. Uh, and that was done by Arrow and Debreu in the, uh, the 1950s, for which they got a no, uh, Nobel Prizes. And the interesting thing about their important work was that they showed markets lead to efficient outcomes only under a highly restricted set of conditions. There can't be externalities like climate change. Uh, there has to be high levels of competition and markets are increasingly characterized by uh, high levels of monopoly power or imperfections of competition. But one of the strong assumptions, two of the strong assumptions uh, made by Arrow and DePrue that they had to make to get their results were that 
information was perfect, the markets were perfect, uh, perfect risk markets, and that there was no technological change or no endogenous technological change. One of the results of my own work, uh, particularly that with my colleague Bruce Greenwald at Columbia, was that the reason it often seemed that the invisible hand was invisible was it wasn't there. Uh, that markets were not really efficient. Uh, and the presumption that unfettered markets would lead to the general well-being of society just was wrong. Uh, in general, the markets uh, did not deliver societal well, even efficiency, let alone a broader sense of social justice. Well, what we're talking about this afternoon is innovation and the assumption that Arrow and Debrew made was that there was no innovation or if there was innovation, it happened on its own. But the first two uh, comments I made were that innovation is really important and it is endogenous. It is affected by our allocation resources to innovation. Well, as we started looking at the question of were markets efficient in either the, uh, the level of investment in nature, in, in innovation or in the direction of innovation, I'll come explain in a minute what I mean, uh, or in the way they did innovation, the answer came out very unambiguous. Markets are efficient in not none of the, the key questions about innovation that there was no presumption that what comes out of the unfettered markets was efficient. Now, uh, it is true that what, I mean, the advocates of, of markets have always said that one of the virtues of, of the market economy is that it spurs innovation. And I think there's a lot of truth in that. That was the uh, key idea of one of the another great economist of the 20th century, Joseph Schumpeter. And he argued forcefully that this, uh, he said, well, there could be monopoly, but competition to be the next monopolist spurred innovation and was uh, an important basis for the increases in standard of living. Well, there were many ideas packed into his conclusion, uh, his argument, that this uh, competition to be the next monopolist would lead to efficiency. And it turned out when you looked at it more carefully, he was wrong. It, it is true that it can be a spur to innovation, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's a spur to the right kind of innovation or that it was uh, the right level of spur, that it lead to the efficient level of investment in R&D. And there are a whole variety of, of reasons that I can't uh, go into uh, all of them for why it is the case that markets on their own are not efficient in either the level or direction uh, of innovation. Uh, let me just, as an aside, what do I mean by the direction of innovation? You can decide to allocate more resources towards saving labor or 
to saving the planet, to climate change, or you can save skilled labor or unskilled labor. So there are many things you can try to, to many directions of research, new products, uh, uh, which diseases do people allocate resources. And if you think about, you know, should we be spending more money on research to save the planet or more money to save labor so we have more unskilled labor unemployment, say in the United States, it's very clear uh, saving labor when there's already a lot of unemployment doesn't improve societal efficiency. But saving the planet could merely make a difference. So reducing uh, innovations that reduce uh, carbon emissions have an enormous social value. But until very recently, we've not been allocating resources in that direction. Once we started thinking about it, we start getting progress. The cost of renewable energy has fallen enormously in 10 or 15 years. But what's remarkable about it is most of that innovation is not based on breakthrough science. It's not like somebody, you know, it's based on something that nobody knew about 15 years ago. They could have done it 25 years ago or 30 years ago. But what did they do? They put all their efforts into making sure we have more unemployment. And you can understand that uh, more unemployment, saving labor, increases profits, reducing carbon emissions. You don't get any return for that. And that really uh, is uh, a key part of the argument for why markets are not efficient in the allocation uh, of R&D. And that is that um, social returns are not necessarily equal to private returns. There can be very big discrepancies between social and private returns. And there are many other uh, examples there are a whole host of examples in the medical care, medical and uh, in, in healthcare. We spend a lot of uh, money doing research on what are called Me Too uh, pharmaceutical. You discover a drug that reduces, uh, say, ulcers, uh, that addresses ulcers. Uh, and then a lot of money is, and then you get a patent on it. And then a lot of money is spent on getting another drug that's just different enough from their original drug so that you too can get a patent and divide the market. And if you're lucky and your advertising is better than the first guy's advertising, you'll even do better than the first guy. So what is the social value of the second drug? Almost zero. It's a little bit because some people will have less side effect from the second drug than the first drug. But uh, no, the, the minuscule social value. Our drug companies did far more, spent far more money on issues like uh, making sure that uh, hair loss was reduced, Rogaine. Uh, I never took it, but uh, uh, maybe I should have. But, but anyway, they, they, then they did on malaria. Millions of people were dying every year from malaria. But unfortunately, the people who were dying from malaria were in Africa and other places that were poor. So 
from their point of view, there's no money in that. And the people who were worried about losing here were in the rich countries and a lot of money in that. So from any social point of view, we'd say, you know, what's more important, millions of people dying from malaria or few people being sensitive about the amount of hair they have on, on their head. Well, I think most of us would say that dying from malaria is far more important than, than hair loss, but our drug companies, they follow the money and they were totally uninterested in malaria. I can go through lots of other examples of that kind where the direction of innovation is not socially optimal. And for an obvious reason that the private returns are different from any assessment of, uh, the social returns. There are other reasons that the private market often is not adequate, uh, in addressing key issues of, uh, innovation. When we talk about, uh, innovation, it's not only the, the direction of innovation, it's the kind of innovation, uh, about whether you make small innovations or big innovations. And the problem with big innovation, they tend to be expensive and risky. And markets are not very good at handling risk and capital markets tend not to be, uh, very well designed for handling that kind of risk. Uh, very hard to collateralize, uh, the, the lending. There are, uh, problems of, uh, asymmetries of information. If I have a brilliant idea and, uh, I want to go and get, uh, this is a, a common problem, Silicon Valley. Uh, I want to get money, uh, uh, funders to provide me money. One of the problems is that to get somebody to give you money for your brilliant idea, uh, what do you have to do? Well, you have to convince them and that means to convince them, you have to tell them your idea. And what do you think happens? Americans are very moral, but money often overcomes their morality. <laughs> so you tell them your idea and what do they say? Oh, I already had that idea. And of course they didn't, but they then take your idea and run off and, uh, patent it. So, uh, I know it sounds scandalous uh, that these things happen, but they happen all the time. And so it's very hard to raise money because in the process of raising money, you share your idea and that loses you your ability to, uh, make money from your idea. So, uh, if you look around some of the most important innovations, they come from the public sector. You know, the private sector is important. Uh, it makes important innovations like post-its. Nobody, uh, uh, yeah, it, it, we all use it. And, and I think you're using one, uh, so it, important innovation, but if you look at the really important innovations, like the internet, it was financed by government. You look at the first browser on the internet financed by the U S government. We were all saved in, uh, COVID-19 by MRNA vaccines. Who paid for the MRNA platform, the idea, 
It was government that met in a research, University of Pennsylvania, an Hungarian woman who developed the mRNA idea. And then put all the money to make sure that it was translated, this idea was translated into uh, a COVID-19, uh, a vaccine for COVID-19. It was uh, U.S. government uh, and government in, in Germany and, and in other countries. So, uh, you know, in the end, the last mile, uh, a few companies like Pfizer did put in some, a lot of money, but it was a minuscule fraction of the money. And the president of Pfizer would like you to believe that he did everything himself. And he said, oh, I didn't get any money. And that was because the public provided the money for the platform, provided the money for the development of the vaccine. And he brought it to the market. Yeah, it was an important contribution, but he was resting on oodles and oodles of public money. And you would not have gotten the private sector. The private sector just didn't do it. So uh, these are some of the reasons. And fundamentally, it's inefficient to have technology provided by the private sector. Why do I say that? Well, one of the important attributes of knowledge uh, science uh, is that it's what we call technically is a public good. Uh, what we mean by a public good is uh, there's no marginal cost to another person using it. Thomas Jefferson, who was our third president in the United States, uh, put it much more poetically when he said knowledge was like a candle. When one candle likes another candle, it doesn't diminish from the light of the first candle. And uh, that was a way of saying that knowledge is very different from a conventional good like steel or anything you eat. If one person eats something, somebody else can't eat it. But if I just told you something, I know it, you know it, but I still know it. So it hasn't diminished from what I know. And the nature of a public good is that Efficiency requires that the knowledge be used as widely as possible. But if it's used as widely as possible, that means you can't privatize it. And that means it needs to be in the public domain. And that means government has to play an important role in the provision, particularly basic uh, knowledge, basic science, basic technology. And uh, this is a, 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 a more general point. Um, as we become a more science-based economy, it means that the role of government will have to get larger. We need to be spending more money on basic research. And that means the government has to provide more support. And we need a larger public sector. So uh, the more that we are a science-based society, if we want efficiency, we have to have a larger public sector. The fourth point is, I've already, uh, not only does the private sector uh, not lead to an efficient allocation of resources to technology, uh, uh, both into pace, direction, uh, the nature of the research, the government has actually done a remarkably good job in allocating money to 
research. The critics of government often point to the failures. Uh, uh, examples where government put money into a research project and it didn't work out. My view is that if there were no failures, that itself would be a failure. That is to say, you want, the nature of, re, of research is that it's a, a inquiry into the unknown. And by its nature, because it's an inquiry into the unknown, you don't know what's going to be successful or a failure. Anybody who's done research know that you, you go down a lot of uh, bad rabbit hole. You know, a lot of, a lot of your time is spent, is wasted. I mean, not wasted, but doesn't lead to results that you would, you had hoped. But you don't know that until you've done, until you've gone through the research. Uh, that's the nature of research, that you, you are, succeed only after many failures. And so the fact, if, if government, every project was successful, it would be evidence that we were spending much too little money that uh, we, we should expect failures as well as successes. In the United States, uh, recently, there was a lot of discussion about our support for uh, various projects related to global warming, you know, and people point out uh, one of the failures was a, a, a solar panel uh, effort. But what they don't point out is Tesla, which has been an enormous success as an electric car, uh, only exists because the government gave it a bundle of money. And uh, the one criticism I have of what the government did is that it gave it that money rather than getting shares. Uh, if it had gotten shares, uh, which is what we a lot of us recommended that it do, uh, the U.S. government would have made a huge amount of money out of it. So there is a criticism of what we've done. It's not that we misallocated the money. We didn't get the return for the public on the money that we uh, allocated. You know, when I was a, a chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors, we, we did a, a, re, a, a study of the average return to our investments in R&D and technology. And it was enormous. It was higher than the private sector return on R&D, higher than the private sector returning general on capital. It, it was a very high uh, return. So sometimes the argument is uh, government can't pick winners. The answer is uh, the government has been remarkably successful on average in getting uh, high return investments. The final point I want to make is government has to uh, not only do its, uh, support uh, basic research, but it also has to steer the direction of the private sector. I said before that the private sector on its own doesn't direct the allocation uh, resources to R&D in a way that is uh, efficient. And that means it has to be directed, steered. And there are many instruments for steering the private sector. Now, the subject of 
industrial policy, which is industry policy of steering the economy, uh, has been very controversial uh, in the last 40 years, uh, of the four years of neoliberalism. People said, you know, government shouldn't be engaged in, in doing that. The first point I want to make is that governments always are steering the economy. You can't not steer the economy. Every time you make a decision about infrastructure, uh, putting a road one place rather than another, building a port or not building a port, has consequences for where the economy is going. So whether you like it or not, uh, you are steering the economy. Uh, the same thing goes about how much you spend on education, uh, whether you spend education. If you don't spend money on education, you are steering the economy towards a low economy. Whether you like it or not, you are always steering the economy. Unfortunately, because you don't think about it, because people don't think about it, what happens is special interests tend to steer the economy. So the United States had a very strong policy of steering the economy, but didn't recognize it. How were we steering the economy? To the financial sector, to derivatives that exploded and brought us 2008 and the global financial crisis. We did little things like a rule that said that if you go bankrupt, the derivatives get paid before anybody else. So that made derivatives more secure than anything else. And it was an explicit statement. We want to encourage derivatives. Now you might ask, why in the world would you want to encourage these risky products that exploded all the time? Well, you don't want to, but there were special interests who wanted to promote these risky products and derivatives. And because nobody else was paying, nobody was paying attention, they got it through Congress. So the point I want to make is that every economy is, that every society is steering the economy, but because you don't have an open discussion about where you want to steer it, it often is steered by special interests. Where do we want to steer our economy right now? I think we want to steer it to in directions for uh, a greener transition, for a more inclusive economy. There, there are lots of things that the market on its own won't do, and we need to steer it. There are many instruments that we have available. I spent a lot of time talking so far about uh, basic research as a instrument of, if you support basic research in one direction, that facilitates the economy moving in that direction. Uh, another uh, thing that you can do is uh, education policy and tax policy, where you encourage uh, how you direct educational resources affects the direction society is going to be 20, 30 years from now. Tax policy, an example, we should be encouraging, as I said before, we should be encouraging uh, research to save the planet, which means reduce carbon emissions. If we had a tax on carbon emissions, that would encourage, and were stronger regulations in carbon emissions, that would encourage research for reducing carbon emissions. What we have is a tax on labor. So what does that do? It encourages 
saving labor. So we have a tax structure that encourages saving of labor to get more unemployment of labor and a tax structure that doesn't encourage saving the planet. So that's an example of how you can use tax policy to steer the economy. There's been a, a, a fundamental change in attitudes towards industry policy, towards steering. Um, and uh, it's so interesting for me to watch this because I, I've been advocating these ideas for a very long time. But now even the Republicans in the United States agreed that we need industry policy. Uh, and it has been talked a lot by the Biden administration. So uh, there's been really a revolution in thinking in economics about uh, steering the economy and in particular steering innovation. And uh, that brings me to, to the final point. The government here is beginning to talk about well-being budgeting, budgeting money to uh, ensure that you not just increase GDP, but you increase well-being more broadly. And that's really a general part of, uh, or a, a broader aspect of what I'm talking about uh, here. All the examples that I've told about how the market may be maximizing profits, but it isn't maximizing societal well-being. And that the objective of economic policy is not to maximize GDP, but it's to maximize societal well-being. And there are many instances where those two are not congruent. And uh, in a world of scarcity, we have to make sure that every dollar is well spent. And that, that means that it does multiple objectives, climate change, inclusiveness and equality and diversity. Technology policy is an important part of public policy. And what I hope I've done uh, this afternoon is try to give you some arguments uh, some uh, for why it is that a technology policy that promotes innovation that is focused around promoting societal well-being should be an important part of government policy. Thank you. Thank you so much for that incredibly insightful address, Joe. Uh, and now it's time to turn to our conversation. And I'd like to introduce Professor Mich Michelle Badley, who is Professor of Economics and Associate Dean Research at the UTS Business School. Uh, Michelle is an expert in behavioral economics and behavioral finance. Uh, she has an economics degree from University of Queensland and a PhD from Cambridge. Um, she's also director of the new Centre for Livelihoods and Wellbeing, uh, which uh, Joe just referred to at the end. Um, at UTS and also President of the Society for the Advancement of Behavioural Economics and Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Behavioural Economics for Policy. Uh, she has many other um, university and uh, professional affiliations, which I won't go into. Uh, suffice it to say that Michelle specialises in the application of behavioural insights across a range of themes relevant to people's economic and financial decision-making. And uh, we'll now start our conversation with you, Joe, and uh, hopefully we'll have some time for questions from the audience as well. 
Over to you, Michelle. Thank you, Roy. Um, thank you, Joe. That was such a rich um, outline of a whistle stop tour of economics on the corner of that. Uh, everything from efficiency right through to well-being. So I have so many questions I could ask, but I'll, I'll try to be a bit focused and obviously give everyone a turn. Um, so to, starting with some of the, the earlier points um, about efficiency and when I first started with economics, the focus on efficiency, one, one thing that was made clear is that certainly at that time, economists sort of start, sidestep distributional issues. And so you can, the arrow de can very cleverly show with, with clever mathematics that how to find an efficient solution, but it, it's completely silent on distribution. And so a lot of what you're talking about is how the, you know, the distribution, not just in, in monetary terms or in money terms, but also leading into the themes around well-being. These sorts of distributional well-being issues are something that economists, you know, are relatively new to in many ways. Uh, so what, what's your view of how e economics as a profession could learn to or, or engage with these sorts of insights more deeply, especially because something like well-being is difficult to quantify? Yeah. So first of all, one of the reasons that economists didn't, uh, maybe an excuse for economists not talking about distribution. Uh, and let me say the, it, it wasn't just that they were, didn't talk about it. They were hostile to talking about it. Uh, there's, a, a, a famous quote from Bob Lewis, who's a Chicago, uh, economist, Nobel laureate who said of all the things that is most poisonous to talk about distribution uh, is uh, the most poisonous. So he was really hostile to even talking about distribution and behind it, uh, that was, uh, another theorem in a way, which was that if you didn't like the distribution of income, uh, you just have lump sum redistributions. And you take money from one person in a lump sum way and you give it to another person. And that redistribution was a matter of politics, not a matter of economics. Mm. And where he went wrong, in, I mean, he went wrong in so many ways. So I, uh, uh, but, uh, among the things where he went wrong, what first that theorem that you could separate out distribution from efficiency is just wrong mm, yeah. that, uh, there don't exist these lump sum taxes, uh, that every tax has a distribution consequences in a world of imperfect information, you can't, uh, separate the two. And there's a general empirical result that people now, uh, called a lot of attention to. Uh, and it was really the center of one of my books, uh, which was called the price of inequality. And one of the arguments I made in the, that book was that inequality actually led itself directly to lower poor economic performance. So that distribution couldn't be put in a separate bucket from overall economic performance. Uh, and there are a whole set of, of, of reasons. One obvious, uh, one example is that 
if you have a lot of inequality, people at the bottom never are able to live up to their potential. And so you're wasting uh, one of your most valuable resources, your human resources. Mm. And so you, you just can't separate out the two. So that idea that we could ignore distribution, which was the predicate a lot, uh, mm. on, uh, uh, on the basis of which a lot of economists did that, mm. was wrong. Mm. And and that sort of underpins a lot of you what you were saying as well. So the an, an idea from economics. Well, economists often are described in quite simplistic ways, in which I don't necessarily identify with. But economists have been exploring for a long time issues around efficiency wages and disguised unemployment and underemployment, all these sorts of things, which underpin this idea that absolutely you address inequality and everyone's a winner in, in a sense. But I guess. Economists make assumptions in theory that maybe even the economists don't believe themselves, and yet they get seized by vested interests. The results get seized by vested interests, which is another thing within a lot of what you were saying before is that, that the power of vested interests. Um, how optimistic are you about a democratic political system being able to develop countervailing powers to these vested interests, particularly in the context of I'm generalizing, but an ordinary person is much more cynical about government than they are about McDonald's or, you know, the, the, the big, or big farmer or whatever. And, and that allows these big, powerful economic groups more influence than maybe they yeah, I think, could ideally have. I think, uh, uh, look, let me talk about first a little bit from an American perspective, mm. because, uh, our private sector has achieved, uh, the ability to have equal citizenship with the public sector. Um, it took a lot of work, but uh, when you combine uh, the abuses in the financial sector in 2008 with the opioid crisis, uh, with the food companies giving rise to uh, the epidemic of childhood diabetes, with uh, Volkswagen lying about the diesel gate, uh, with the oil companies supporting NGOs claiming there's no such thing as climate change with the tobacco companies saying that their products are not addictive. Uh, you have a really concerted effort to undermine confidence in the private sector. Uh, and I think, and then you have, uh, uh, Facebook and, and all the harms that it's done. Uh, I think what is quite remarkable is the large fraction of probably a majority of the students going into business school don't believe in capitalism anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, so we, we now have a, a balance of skepticism on both the public and, and the private sector. Now I think, and obviously if our society is going to work, we're, we're, we're going to have to get more trust. Yeah. Um, it's something and, I was thinking as well, as you were talking that the role of trust and, and trusting the right people. Yeah. yeah. And. And now a fundamental problem that we're dealing with in one of the two parties is, uh, they don't believe in truth mm. and, and mis and disinformation has been elevated. Mm. Uh, you know, uh, you get to believe whatever you want mm. and you can say, well, I saw it on the internet. You can see anything on the internet and people say, oh, I did my own research. What does that mean? I, I looked at the inter inter internet and found somebody who agreed with me. 
vaccines are dangerous. And that goes to the point I made about relitigating the, the enlightenment mm-hmm. uh, in a constant that there is a meaning of truth. We, we may not be perfectly certain that the world is not flat, <laughs> but we're pretty sure. Yeah. And we even have pictures of, of you know, from out of that, that it looks, you know, sort of spherical. There is a flat earth society and go on the internet, you can find somebody giving an argument about the earth being flat, but that doesn't mean that they're equally weighted. This talks about the importance of education on the one hand, but also uh, importance of transparency, uh, of, of being able to see what is going on, uh, not having uh, secrets. Also, it was about government regulation, because I think uh, one of the big challenges that we are going to be facing is dealing with the problem of, uh, going forward, is dealing with mis- and disinformation in a way that is consistent with what we call First Amendment rights, uh, free speech, yeah, yeah, so forth. Yeah. And that, that point about regulation and how to regulate information, how to regulate the internet when it's a globalized thing, starting to touch on some of your other yeah. work on, the, on themes of globalization. That there's so much to our monopolize. Sadly, <laughs> we're reaching the end of our time and we've probably got another dozen questions to ask, but we're going to curb our enthusiasm um, and um, just um, ask uh, everyone out there whether you have a question. I, I think we can take one or two before we end. Yes. Over there. Many years ago, I was teaching courses on war and peace in a changing world, and we were talking about the role of the government in promoting, in, shall I say, uh, research and technology into weaponry in the world, in particular in the US, where an overwhelming majority of your scientists were locked into the industrial military complex. The other evening, one of your colleagues, Bruce Shapiro from Columbia was talking about last weekend, you had seven, no, you had 12, I should say, mass shootings in the United States and the addiction to weaponry and to armaments in the US and government investment into that industry is the driving force of so many of the innovations we have these days in the, in the world from Velcros onwards. Um, do you see that changing in the future? Is it as bad now as it was back in the height of the Cold War, say in the 1980s, with Star Wars and all that? Do you see a change in research and development in the US into well-being and civilian needs rather than military needs? Thank you. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the interesting things uh, about the research that went on uh, in the industrial, uh, in the military industrial, the military, uh, was how much of it turned out to be directed to broader societal. The military was less militaristic than a lot of people realized. So the internet, for instance, was developed uh, under, by DARPA, uh, by the U.S. military. And one of its attributes, which is its very decentralized nature, which a lot of people, you know, libertarians like, was done deliberately because they were afraid that a centralized system could be attacked. And they wanted a system that was immune from an easy uh, attack. So it's interesting that, that out of, you know, out of that military came some things that have really transformed our society. 
Uh, and, uh, you know, one of the things when people uh, say, uh, talked about industrial policy or, you know, industry policy, U.S. always had industry policy, but it was just hidden in our defense department. Now, uh, the, uh, and it was the only way you could get money for it. But the military knew that it wasn't spending money on just military things. They, they understood the broader uh, context uh, of what they were doing. I think the big change is climate change because it is existential. And uh, we are now doing an awful, the government is spending a lot of money on research on climate change. Health is also a big, become very big. So I think as we start thinking about two things people care a lot about, health and the environment, those are really nothing, you know, quite apart from military and have become a, a, a very big part of our innovation budget. And so I think we are moving away from this single focus on, on military as the vehicle for supporting research. Well, I think we're going to have to end things there. I'm very sorry that we can't take any more questions, but uh, as um, Professor Stiglitz pointed out, we have to reassert the values of the Enlightenment almost every day. And uh, we've had a very good example of that tonight. It's been a fantastic evening, a fantastic conversation. And thank you, Michelle, for participating. And thank you, everyone, for coming along tonight. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Think Business Futures. Thank you to the UTS Business School for providing us the audio of Joseph Stiglitz's address. We very much hope you enjoyed it. You can listen and share this chat wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe to get Think Business Futures in your feed each week. And please support the show by leaving a review. I'm your host, Stefan Postuma, and I'll see you again somewhere in the world of business next week.